there is nothing socialistic about ESOPs. It is capitalism in its purest form, but it's a better form of capitalism. So this, this gets into sort of a little bit of history and philosophy that since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it's the 1% elite that own the means of production and the rest of us tend to be rented labor. Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to Life After Business, the podcast. Thanks, everybody, for tuning back in. This is episode 113. And today on the show, we have Daniel Goldenstein, who is the president and CEO of Foliance. And he is here to share with us the crazy journey that he's been on, along with what they're doing at Foliance and how employee ownership and the ESAP that they have of a company that's been around for 150 years or so, and what they're doing to help spread the word of employee ownership. Daniel has a cool background that he came from working with a lot of really, really wealthy families in the family offices. He came from the banking side. He's seen a whole spectrum of how to create wealth, to invest in companies. And he's on the show today to describe and compare the other ways of making money in private equity and family offices and holding company to an ESOP, what that means to you, the business owner who could potentially sell to an ESOP and how to make that company last for a long time and what the things mean to you your employees, to the longevity of your culture, to the finances, to all these different things. It's just a, absolutely a blast talking to him. So if you're interested in learning how to get fair market value for your business, create a culture that lasts and to literally help a lot of people through your exit, this is an absolute must listen to. So without further ado, here's my episode with Daniel. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by GEXP Collaborative. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the buyer of your choice at the price you want. Morning, Dan. How are you doing? Good morning. Doing great. So super uh, uh, happy to have you on the show. I am really excited because you have a very unique background business model and we got introduced to each other via um, Diane from the Alliance of M&A Advisors and she put us in touch and <laughs> I got a laugh just when I reached out to you you were very you, you you and I had this whole conversation about saying no and that's one of the things that I've been trying to do and your response of <laughs> I don't even remember how you did it but it was it was amazing and I have to take some uh take some lessons about how you're screening people that are reaching out to you but <laughs> after we had the phone call um our 15 minute call ended up I think it was what an hour realizing that uh we've got a lot of um, commonalities and how we're looking at this whole industry of M&A and business owners. And so for the listeners that were not in, uh, involved in all that, why don't you give us a background of, you know, how did you get to where you are today? Absolutely. And just commenting on that first uh, sort of introductory <laughs> phase, um, there, there are a lot of people out there that do pay to play and I don't participate in that. And so I was really impressed with what you're doing because it's not a pay-to-play model. It's that you actually care about getting good content out to people and 
you're not charging me. And uh, so that's why I was very willing to participate in this. So thank well, you. It was that. just too funny because like, I mean, <laughs> you and I were talking because, you know, there's Tim Ferriss and all these people out there that are kind of like, everybody's trying to figure out how to say no. And it was just absolutely hilarious. <laughs> it's like, you're like, what am I, what are you selling? I'm like, no, I literally just want to chat. And you're like, ah, I'm like, and then it's like, well, by the way, I have got some amazing billboard spots that I can sell you. <laughs> but yeah, why don't you give the listeners a, a background because your journey into what you're doing right now and what you're doing with your business is just so intriguing. So I know it's a, probably a long story, but you know, some of the cliff notes that kind of make some, sure. some logical steps to where you got. Yep. So, I mean, first of all, you know, it, it, it's great when you look backwards because it makes a lot of sense. Of course, while you're going through the journey, you, you don't have much of an idea. You have a direction that you head in, but I, I never could have foreseen any of this. But so after college, I worked for a bank. I worked in the public sector for three different governors and their executive budget offices. Went back, did an MBA and another master's degree, and then spent pretty much the next 20 years working in the world of family business, family office, family foundation. And that's for very wealthy families that have been very successful. Uh, so I started in Kansas City, working at the Kaufman Foundation. Mr. Kaufman had built a business from zero to several, several billion dollars in the pharmaceutical industry, was the owner of the Kansas City Royals baseball team. And in 1993, on his passing, uh, he had left $1.25 billion to his foundation, which has since grown considerably. So after uh, Mr. Kaufman passed, he left $1.25 billion to his foundation. It has since grown to almost double that. Um, and I worked on investing the assets of the foundation as well as writing curriculum around entrepreneurship and venture capital. And I stayed there for a couple of years and then, uh, very long story short, ended up living in Italy for the next about 18 years. And for most of that time, was working for one family that had been very successful in the industries around uh, heavy trucks, both as importer, but also uh, use of trucks, so logistics, warehousing, transportation, and also were direct real estate investors. And so I helped set up their family office, took care of investing their liquid wealth, uh, took care of several of the family businesses, managing real estate across Europe and in the United States. They were a family that was very active in enjoying yachts and so managed yachts and then set up a not-for-profit foundation for them and ran that for many years. In 2014, came back to the U.S., uh, had a year stint with a uh, wealth management boutique firm that had brought me in for succession planning, but uh, turned out had very different ideas of succession. And so um, in 2016, I was uh, back in Italy towards the beginning of the year and received an email from a friend of mine in London who had very randomly run into a guy from Iowa who had family in London <laughs> who had told her a story and she said, you should get in touch with him and hear the story. And so that's how I uh, got introduced to what we're about to talk about. Well, and that it's such an interesting journey too, because of the exposure. And that's why I think, you know, it'll be fun to talk about what you're doing now, because 
you have this big spectrum of investing in entrepreneurship and people and wealth. And so you see, you know, you've seen the big spectrum of how you can do all this stuff and how to deploy capital and how, you know, different liquidation events happen. So I think, you know, you, it's not just, you know, a blinders on because you've only been doing this, right? I mean, you've, you've seen every different nook and cranny of it. So let's, why don't you get to just give a, the brief overview of kind of the structure of what you guys have got going on? Because I think there's a lot of different ways we can go with this. Sure. So the company uh, that I'm involved with traces its roots back to 1884, and that is 1884, not 1984. Um, (laughs) And that's because there is a newspaper started the year before, which uh, we still own and operate, the Cedar Rapids Gazette newspaper. And over the years, uh, the family added to the newspapers with other newspapers. They got into broadcasting and started a television station, also got into radio broadcasting. And fast forwarding from 1884 to 1986, there was a hostile takeover attempt and part of the family wanted to sell, part did not. So the family started a partial ESOP, employee stock ownership plan, to give liquidity to buy out the part of the family, the minority of the family, shareholders that wanted out and leave the rest of the family in control. Now, at that time, the uh, partial ESOP had options to buy more shares of the company, and so it was actually valued as a majority ESOP. And Hmm. without getting into the weeds, what's interesting is that in 1986, that actually made this one of the um, more historic uh, majority ESOPs, uh, certainly in this region, if not you know just overall in the country, because ESOPs had only been. I was going to say uh, that was way early on. <laughs> yeah, and then going forward from there, uh, in 2012, uh, the company tendered an offer to buy back the remainder of the family shares, and those were retired, which made the partial ESOP now 100% owner of the company. So since 2012, the ESOP has been 100% owner. But something very odd happened, which is that typically the family would not really have any connection because they no longer have ownership. But because at the time the company had both a newspaper and a television station, the FCC required, in order to maintain the broadcast license, continuity of control. Hmm. And that meant that even though the family had no ownership, they had to uh, maintain control of the company. So they controlled the board and what was at the time a directed trustee. And that's a very odd situation for a family with no ownership to have full control of the board and the trustee. And that lasted until in 2015, the company sold their television station 62 years after it had been brought wow. on air. And so very long hold time. Uh, we're not about flipping companies. That, that's, a, that's a little bit longer than the seven years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that you see in private equity. And so it was at that time that it then became really a conflict of interest that so you'd have a family controlling the board and trustee of a company in which they have no ownership. And that's when I came into the picture I was brought in because looking at after 130 years of being a family-owned, family-controlled, media-concentrated conglomerate, if the company was going to be around for the next 130 years, which we humbly intend to do so, it wasn't going to be by just being concentrated in media. And so uh, my predecessor was looking for somebody to come in 
and really build a new company and then to lead that company into diversifying to add to the media holdings by uh, bringing in other companies uh, beyond media. So there's a lot that I want to dive into there, what your future strategy is and you know why you like this structure and model. But before we do that, Daniel, can you can you explain to the listeners and even for my benefit is like, you know, uh, there's a lot of confusion out there, you know, in ESAPs and we've had other people on, on the show that have dove into some of the technical weeds of this, but like, can you explain a little bit more of the conflict of interest in the board and the trustee and all that kind of, because I think a lot of people say, well, you know, I don't, you know, a lot, especially entrepreneurs who are used to being in control, right? It's like, I don't want to sell my company to my employees because it's like, it, you know, it's socialism and everybody's going to have a, you know, an, an opinion. And so, but then how you structure the, you know, the, the ESOP and then the board and the trustee, all that can kind of put different dynamics on the situation, right? So maybe kind of explain what the typical is and explain why that was so unique and how, how that structure was. Sure. And there, there are a couple things in there. So let me just quickly uh, go to the one that could be the hot button that people hear. There is nothing socialistic about ESOPs. It is capitalism in its purest form but it's a better form of capitalism. So this gets into sort of a little bit of history and philosophy that since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it's the 1% elite that own the means of production and the rest of us tend to be rented labor. And that's a very unequal system. Within capitalism, if you just change the ownership and, and it's very capitalistic that if the employees are the owners of the company, then they get to invest their labor to earn equity in the company. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate American dream. And so then there's a better uh, equality both in the income but in the, the wealth gap that you see in today's world that the late night production worker, the forklift driver, the receptionist, they all get to earn equity in the business by investing their labor. And that is pure capitalism. But so looking at the conflict of interest that, uh, that, that you talk about, something that we believe in is having the best practice of uh, governance, because that really is going to be one of the most fundamental elements for allowing a company to be sustainable and profitable. And with that, um, it, it starts with having a good board. And you can look, anyone can look on our website, uh, foliance.com, and see who our board members are. We're very proud of the people that we've been able to attract to our board because of the great skill and the experience that they represent and, and what they bring to challenge our team and support our team. And then there's this weird dynamic with ESOPs that the board appoints the trustee and the trustee appoints the board. And yes, that is circular. So it depends who comes first. So in the example of a company that has a board that becomes an ESOP, the board would appoint the trustee. But so for example, in our history, we were already an ESOP and we already had a trustee, but we had to change our board because we had to go from that family board, which was then a conflict of interest once uh, we didn't have that need for continuity to keep our broadcast license. And so we then came up with a slate of new board members that we submit to our trustee and our trustee um, accepted them as the new board. So it, it actually makes sense, even though it's circular. And 
something else that I'll point out, there are a lot of ESOPs that uh, have internal trustees, and I absolutely disagree with that. I think best practice is to have an external trustee. Um, this isn't advertising, just transparency. We use Great Bank as our trustee, and we feel that a corporate trustee brings much greater uh, resources, liability insurance, just as an individual, there's really no reason why you would want to take on that liability. Hey, what's the role of that trustee? So the trustees um, got two primary actions, and, and and I'm not an attorney, and an ESOP attorney would tell you, we don't have an ESOP attorney on right now. So this is just two guys having a conversation. <laughs> and, and so basically it boils down to this. They can either quit or they can fire the board. And so we always joke that while we have a great uh, relationship with our trustee and we keep them up to speed on everything that we do, we never ask for their approval. So <laughs> if, if I tell the trustee what we're doing and they don't quit, they don't fire my board, then what we can say <laughs> is the trustee did not disapprove. And so, <laughs> you know, that, that's sort of a little flip of an answer, but it really is the case. And so what the trustee is doing is they're making sure that you stay on the right side of the law. ESOPs are allowed by ERISA and IRS and other legislation, and there's a lot of regulatory scrutiny, and the trustee is there to make sure that you don't get on the wrong side of that. That's their primary role. And then they want to make sure that you have a good board in place. And then our board is a fantastic board because they do three things, and this is really important. The three things are they look at our strategy, they make sure that we have a good process, and they make sure that the right people are following that process. They don't get into the weeds, they don't make investment decisions, they don't even approve or disapprove acquisitions. They make sure that we're, they're looking at the strategy, that we're, we've got that good process, and we have the right people following the process. And so between the trustee and the board, and then getting into the distributed leadership and the executive team and the different management structures and reporting and communication within the company, that good process, good governance follows all the way through uh, from trustee to board into the executive leadership and across the company. Well, and what's super cool, but when you, when you're totally nailing that whole structure that you just described. I think what's very interesting is a lot, you know, a lot of the people that do the, the ESOPs, they're, they're doing it for the first time. And then they're like, you know, it's a way of like liquid, uh, getting liquidity for the owner, you know, getting the employees involved, but there's, there's a lot of the owner pushing it where I think your guys's model. And, and this is where I'm super curious. And because of your background of, you know, when you look at the big global picture of how to create wealth, right. I mean, you've got, Family offices where you came from, right? So, I mean, you you took it from what one point five billion to three. I mean, that's when you're talking about investing in sports teams and in, in real estate and companies. So, you've got the family office kind of model. Then there's the there's a lot of holding companies, and I, and I want to tie this back, Daniel, to the 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 labor, investing labor because I think there's just a lot of this unique parts of this where you know a holding company would be you know another another wealthy entrepreneur who is gobbling up other companies that are like companies. So there's a lot, there's some um, billionaires here in the twin cities that are the pole ads and uh, Cargill's and all these people that are like, you know, that's what their families do, but it's all privately owned. 
which is significantly different than what you're doing. And I think there's a, what I find very unique about your situation is that you're kind of playing in the same space as those guys or companies but versus a lot of the, the, the entrepreneurs who just do the ESOP and then the, their small company just continues to chug along. So can you, does that kind of make sense to sit in the context and then how your guys' purpose and mission, I think, is so, so unique. So can you explain you know, what the ultimate goal is and how, that your, how your structure is different than some of those other family offices or holding companies? Sure. And just one thing, I don't want to take any of the credit for that almost doubling in asset size. I played a minor role 20 years ago in that, so I don't want to take any of that credit. Well, I think, you know, just, and I wasn't trying to give you all the credit for that either, is I think it's what the reason I brought that up, I think, Daniel, is that, you know, when you have so much money, it's all about deploying the money, which is what yeah. offices do and these holding companies, right? They're deploying money and investing and purchasing assets, which then in turn, the labor is rented labor, kind of like you said, right? Yeah. So I think there's this whole different, unique dynamic of wealth, wealth distribution, and how that even though the same things are happening, what your model is doing is the ripple effect is significantly different. Yeah. And so in in looking at what we're doing, so the first thing is that we're not buying at a discount. Um, our model is that we go out and we find privately held, closely held or family owned businesses. And we're going to pay fair market value. We're not going to pay a premium. We're not a strategic buyer. And the Department of Labor uh, actually prohibits ESOPs from paying a premium, although there's some you know, range within what you would consider uh, fair market value, value to premium. But in, in general, we're, we're not buying a discount. We're paying fair market value, but we're looking for the business owner that says, sure, I want fair market value for my ownership, but I really care what happens to my employees, to the community in which the company is based, and to the continuation of the brand or the legacy. And so for that owner, we offer a very different uh, future. So the first thing is that we're patient capital. And we're not going to buy a company and put it back up for sale in the three to five to seven year time period that a private equity investor has to put a company up for sale again because they need to get the IRR to their investors. So again, yes, we sold the television station 62 years after we <laughs> brought it on air. You know, that's not flipping a company. Uh, so as we bring a company through this transition of ownership, our platform is a platform for professional ownership and growth. And what that means is that when a company is in need of transition, they could be transitioned to a private equity owner who, again, at some point, it could be in the shorter term or medium term, the company's going to be up for sale again. It could be a longer term capital with a management buyout or even creating their own ESOP. But again, there's a lot of cost and complexity that goes into that. And what happens is, even if you have a good underlying uh, company with continuity of the management that runs that company, if that management has to then focus their attention on becoming the owners, then they're going to take their eye off the underlying business. And that introduces operational risk into the business. And as they try to take on the skill of being the owner, it introduces compliance risk into that area, which is not their expertise. And so if a company goes through a transition of ownership, 
And that underlying company with their continuity of management joins the Foliance platform. They can just continue on what they know best, which is profitably operating and growing that business. And then Foliance is going to take care of the distraction of all that ownership. And then they're going to bring in the shared services, which is going to supplement the management of the company. So for example, if uh, when we brought in Lifeline Emergency Vehicles, they really know how to make great ambulances. They don't need to be the experts on human resources, information technology, audits, compliance, legal insurance, health benefits, et cetera. That's where Foliance's shared services team comes in and partners with them to help them become uh, very proficient at that part of the business while they just focus on what they know best, making the ambulances and selling the ambulances. And that's where there's a different structure. And then, of course, we're huge proponents of employee ownership. So at the same time that we're doing all this, that transition takes closely held ownership and distributes it across the employee uh, base of the company, which, again, great capitalism, great American dream. And there's a lot of uh, research that shows that ESOPs do have a competitive advantage over other forms of companies, partly because of the tax structure and also largely because of that motivation, that, that factor that employees have direct line of sight that they are working for their own uh, company, for their own ownership, for their own long-term financial benefit. Well, and so there's a couple things there that I want to I want to peel apart too, which I think are super interesting because, you know, you're, the the model, and, I, and this is where I was kind of alluding to, where like the model of buying a company and then you know taking those shared services, so the platform business. I mean, like you know, whether it's a private equity or a holding company or a family office, they're all kind of trying to. There, it's all about leverage of resources, right? So, mm-hmm. but like what you what you said, which is really interesting, Daniel, is that you're coming in there and you're taking the burden of ownership off because you're doing the back end administration and you know ownership stuff but they still become owners, right? So like they got the best sides of both worlds where like if a private equity firm goes in there, buys someone, and then that that key executive now is part owner, then they're now concerned about the bottom line and squeezing every, you know, the blood out of the turnip instead of selling or managing the business. So they're like, like you said, it's a total distraction, but they still get the benefits because of what your structure is. Yeah, and profitability is first and foremost in everybody's mind. Uh, again, we're, we're we're not a foundation or altruistic, or whatever. If you don't have profitability, then nobody's going to do well. And so that that is first and foremost in everybody's mind here. But I've had people ask, well, wouldn't you, Daniel, personally, make more money if you did this as a private equity investor? And sure, absolutely. But that's not the point. It, the the point is that. First of all, this is uh, long-term patient capital, and you can't have long-term patient capital if it's the ownership is held in just the hands of a, a small group or investor base that is interested in harvesting their return. And so, again, I get people saying, well, what's your exit strategy? Well, besides the fact that any business needs to look at weathering economic volatility, changes in technology and business cycles, et cetera, et cetera, we don't get into this with an exit strategy. We get into this with a growth and long-term patient uh, capital holding strategy. And so we're leveraging uh, resources. We're able to leverage the shared services. We're able to leverage uh, the fact that we own our own uh, full-service advertising agency. So 
any uh, company that's going to join Foliance gets to benefit from the fact that we have an in-house uh, shared resource, which is to help them either rebrand or refresh their brand, work on their social media, their strategic marketing. Uh, they work with us on internal communication. So there's that. Then there are cohorts of people that work across business units. So for example, in the human resources area, there's a cohort of human resources professionals that are embedded in each of these business units and they work together and they can share best practice. They can uh, solve problems that come up in any one business. And so typically in a lower mid-market uh, level company, you may have one or two people that are working on HR, but they're an island. They don't have anyone that they can really work with within the company that understands the work that they're doing. In this case, that island gets to connect with the islands and all the other businesses that we have. It's not competitive, it's collaborative. They have a shared alignment that they're all working towards the same end, which is to be successful and grow the value of the overall uh, ESOP. And so there's a great incentive for them to work together on solving problems. Because they're, they're getting it, they're investing their labor, which is like, I, across multiple companies too. And, you know, one thing that you, that you said that is, is very interesting. And I think that ties in, I want to go back to when you were talking about how, like when you're buying a company and the fair market value that you're paying and the, the legacy is like, you're going in it not for an exit strategy. And I think what's very unique about the ESOP structure is because you have them and it, maybe you can expand on my basic <laughs> explanation of this, but is you because there's a built-in marketplace with your company, right? Because you know you don't have, like you said. You, there's it's not concentrated in a couple of people that have to liquidate at some point to their heirs or to someone. Where the, there's right. a built, there's a built-in marketplace where people will divest of their shares individually, but the whole entity continues to grow because it's got an ongoing growing marketplace. Is it? it can you explain yes. maybe expand on that and how that's different than like a family office or a, a holding company or a, or a private equity firm? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in my work on uh, five continents with hundreds, thousands of, of different families, family offices, there, there is one common uh, theme statement that, that is universally accepted uh, by all across time, across culture, that only 4% of family wealth makes it into the fourth generation. And that's because the first generation creates the wealth the second generation typically tries to hold on to or tries to grow the wealth and usually the third generation dissipates the wealth and that can be through divorce spending bad investment decisions economic changes business cycle changes all, all sorts of reasons but it's also because if you think about the wealth as the family increases in population so maybe there's a founding couple and then next generation they have two or three kids the next generation they each have two or three kids that pyramid is growing exponentially if capital isn't growing exponentially then if those descendants are expecting to uh, live off the same <laughs> dividend, then, right. you know, the, the math quickly gets breaks. <laughs> it, you know, it doesn't hold up. Well, we don't have heirs in the sense that when somebody leaves an ESOP, their, their kids don't inherit anything. When, when you leave the ESOP, you get cashed out for the value that you've accrued and, and, and you're gone. And so that's where that internal marketplace of sorts happens that, 
there, there's no inheritance. There's no passing on of share or share value. Uh, when, when somebody leaves the company, they, they take the value that they've accrued and the company continues on without an increasing population. So there, there, that's part of the reason why really uh, ESOPs, in my opinion, are actually more patient capital than families because we don't have kids that we have to take care of. That sounds a lot easier, a lot less stressful, but I think, <laughs> but I think you know, it, there's a there's something where you know, and I don't know even how you would articulate or label it, but there's a lot of like you know, what do you want? Would you call them first generation ESAPs, where like the owner does it, and then they, that ESAP eventually sells to private equity or something like that? And I think there's a lot of reasons that that gets forced into that situation versus you guys who have been around this long, and so instead of having to pay, you know, having to take care of those kids, you guys have to accrue for the liabilities of that payout of your employees. And maybe, because, yep. and that's where I'm assuming because of you been around for so long, you've mastered the mathematics behind that because there was a, a little context of that story is there was a very large and successful ESOP here that grew like crazy. And it was actually in uh, set some exposure that uh, I had from our, our last family business. And what happens is that their executive team was just ridiculous. Like, I think it was, I don't know what the numbers were, like 30 to $60 million that was going to have to be paid out to the executive team because there was a wave of retirees. So they literally had to sell it to a private equity firm because that was the only way they were going to come up with that cash. So does, yeah. that's, does that make sense? Because even though you're not taking care of kids, you've got a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff you got to be paying attention to so you can, you know, live on for another 150 years. So how, how do you guys handle that? Yeah. So uh, two two parts to that. The the first part when you're talking about the the initial founder of ESOPs. So the, the the initial ESOP when it comes from the founder is really a transformation from a family owned business to an ESOP, but with family control. And that's where governance is such a key point because oftentimes that initial transformation doesn't have a really full transformation to professional governance. And so the family may have sold their ownership into an ESOP structure, but they still control the board and oftentimes actually hold that internal trustee position, which to me makes no sense. And so if you get beyond that, and that's where uh, Foliance has been able to move from that family control to a professional board and to fully professional partnerships. And so there's no longer any kind of nepotism. It's a meritocracy. We follow best practice. Our board is comprised of seven people. And if you count the chairman of the board who had been CEO of the company as internal, then it would be three internal, four external. Um, if you count him as external because he's no longer, you know, really internal to the company, then it'd be five external, two internal. And that's a, a far better ratio than when, when you have that first generation from founder family to first generation ESOP, where it's often an internal board, an internal trustee, family still controls it, um, even though it's an ESOP structure. So that that's the first part the the second part is that there are esops that um have been hugely successful and almost to their detriment and that sounds a little odd but it's getting to the situation where where you said that if you don't keep an eye on demographics 
then if you have this aging within your population, especially of the executive team, then there, there's a disproportionate ratio of value which is held by this aging demographic that could all retire within a very short time period. And that's where everything becomes top heavy and not sustainable. And so successful ESOPs have to manage over the long term their demographics. And there, there are two reasons. One is so that you don't get top heavy and, and get the ratio all wrong about where the concentration of value is within the ESOP. But the other one is quite frankly, just ongoing sustainability that comes from having good succession across the board of emerging leaders in the company, because it's not just that that demographic will take uh, a disproportionate amount of value out of the company, they'll also lead a gap in uh, who's going to be leading the company going forward. And so a, a good ESOP is going to manage both the demographics, but always look at succession. Who's going to be taking over key roles? Where are emerging leaders being identified and encouraged and, and grown? And that's something that we take a very close look at uh, across our ESOP for both those reasons. You don't want to get top heavy on the value and you want to make sure that if we're going to be around for another 130 years, it's by everybody having good succession plan, having emerging leaders, having a good uh, diversity of age of leadership across businesses. It's so amazing because you're, it's all the stuff that everybody should be doing, but no one actually does because they're all short sighted, but you're forced into doing all the right things and everybody's excited to do the right things. And to, to one uh, clarifying uh, point about the, the taking out the uh, disproportionate amount of the value that's you know specifically because when that person retires, they the ESAP has to pay out the shares, right? Because they cannot keep you know the their shares invested in the company. It has to be a, a clean break, correct? Uh, okay, yes and no. Well, so, the, the, no, this gets a little bit into the weeds, but let me try getting again without giving a lawyer answer because I'm not a lawyer. So, depending on how your plan is written. Um, you either pay people out in a lump sum or over a multiple of years. Some, uh, and there is a choice of when you leave, do you immediately go into whatever that payout status is? Or do you hold, and you don't actually hold shares because you, you never hold shares, but do you hold that value and, and allow it to grow or, or it can go up or down depending on how the annual price goes? And you can, once you start your payout, you can't stop it, but you can delay starting the payout. And the only thing that forces you into the payout is then when you get to the mandatory... Uh, 71 and Well, I, I don't, again, I don't remember. Um, I'm not an attorney on this. I'd have to go to my attorney or to <laughs> first imagine this. It might be 70 and a half or 60. That's half, what I, <laughs> Where you have to take the mandatory minimum uh, distribution. But if, if you're below that age, you can delay going into payout status unless the plan dictates that you are uh, mandatorily going to be paid out in a lump sum. There are other plans that actually segregate and uh, can move the amount into cash, but um, it, it, it's so it depends on the, the individual plan. Well, so it, what I think what I think is so interesting is because it's like I was saying it, it it forces you into looking at the whole ecosystem and the whole entity together, right? And you you said something earlier that I, a meritocracy, and so. 
my one of my favorite people ever, Ray Dalio, has got that all over in his book Principles. But can, and I don't know if that's where you, you where you pulled the word from. But can you can you give your, the listeners your definition of that and how that is impacts into the succession and the big picture and kind of how that all ties together? Sure. So in in my experience of working with many different families, and again, again, across many cultures and languages and continents, part of the reason why there is that three generations of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves is because when you don't have meritocracy, when you don't have a professional best practice approach to governance and management, it can lead to ego and emotion being the ruling factors. And so some families have been extremely successful at, at mastering that. And it's because they bring in professional uh, governance, best practice standards. Many don't. And so I think that the reason why we're able to look at these things is because it's not my company. It, we, we all believe in stewardship and we're all uh, employee owners in this. We have a very good board. We have a professional external trustee. And so we're all challenging ourselves with great accountability and transparency to be making the best professional decisions. And that means looking at those demographics. It means making sure that meritocracy, that good compensation guidelines are, are being uh, brought into place, that uh, there are good audit uh, procedures and business decisions being made. There, there's not a lot of the, the emotional, the ego, there's certainly not the entitlement that you can often see in family-owned uh, businesses that this is our thing, so we're going to make a decision, even if, quite frankly, it's not the best decision for the long term. Now, again, some families have been really successful at doing that. And the family that uh, owned and controlled our business did so into their fourth and fifth generation, which statistically is an outlier, given that 4% that makes it into the fourth generation. What I think is so interesting, Daniel, because like, now think about the, because I don't know if you've seen Ray Dalio's TED talk about his deal principles or, or his book where they, he, he explains how to do this. And even though he's not an ESOP and he runs and he benefits the most because he owns the company. But like, when you think about the, again, the, just the nature of the structure of the ESOP, it, it, it not necessarily forces it, but it immediately mechanically does this where we're like, and so instead of like, if you and I were the operations and sales and we we're sitting down having, have a conversation Instead of us both going into survival mode of, okay, making sure we keep our jobs and we keep our pay because it's self-survival, we're literally concerned about the whole and instead of you and I, oh. which therefore it, it forces you to not have an ego conversation. I mean, just it's just very, like the, the whole dynamics and the conversations have to be completely different than most, than most companies. They do. One thing that I'll say though, uh, Ryan, there's nothing mechanical about this and ESOPs that fail at this fail because it's not mechanical. And so it actually takes considerable deliberate action because I like to say that the E and ESOP employee stock ownership plan actually stands for engagement. And there's a lot of research that shows if you don't engage your employees, you lose the competitive advantage of ESOPs. And it takes a lot of work on culture. And you know people call that the soft skills. It's actually what determines whether or not you're successful in the long run. 
Mm-hmm. And so we uh, have put a lot of time and effort into working with our employees to educate them and to empower them and engage them. And we came out with a program called the License to Act. And every employee has an employee owner card that says on the uh, front, License to Act, because it is their license to act as employee owners. And on the back says, "Today today I am the difference. And the reason why is because every employee can make a difference. It's the employees at the front line who they're working in production. They see where there's waste or how we can better allocate, uh, better uh, organize our production flow. The ones working with the customers see how we can make a better experience for our customers. It's it's not going to come from me. It's not going to come from my leadership team. Mm -hmm. And any business, whether they're an ESOP or not an ESOP, if they worked to engage their employees, they could actually get that same advantage. It's just that most companies even uh, if they're not family owned, they don't work to that level of Mm -hmm. engaging employees. And it's the difference between enabling, uh, not enabling, creating an environment in which employees can be much more productive or spending a lot of time with supervisory top-down micromanagement, which has been proven to not be successful. Well, and, and it's, yeah, it, it, people actually care and you want them to be happy and it, it trickles into how they can interact with everybody. And I got to tell you a funny story, Daniel. I, uh, I got a friend that he owns a very successful recruiting company here in town. <laughs> and he uh, was, one of his recruiters was placing a very high level IT executive at a very large ESOP. <laughs> and he's sitting there talking to the two you know, I don't know, it was like mid, mid-level mid management at this, you know, multi-billion dollar ESOP holding company. And they're like, well, like, so if we just use this person for three months, uh, you know, and we just pay per hour and then we, so they essentially found out that if they kept, you know, using this person for a certain amount of months, then they wouldn't have to pay the recruiting fee. <laughs> and so like, and he, he was like, why is it that big of a deal to pay the 25 grand? And Lo and behold, he goes, oh, they're an ESOP. So I'm sitting down in front of two owners who are negotiating down to the cent with me as a vendor because <laughs> they literally get benefited from like finding every single nuanced way to save money. <laughs> and, and it's good when people are looking at how to really utilize resources, but it's also, so for example, the, the, the best approach to uh, hiring people is that you're not hiring an employee. You're really looking to see whether or not this person is interested in becoming a co-owner in Foliance. And and the best ESOPs aren't just hiring employees, they're bringing in new co-owners. And when you look at it that way, it changes how you recruit, how you onboard, and then how you keep that employee owner engaged to really be a good steward of, of the company. And so it's also short-sighted. We, we believe that you have to build really good partnerships with mm-hmm. external, uh, what, what would be called by other service providers, we call partners. Because in the long run, you're, you're going to make money by having great partners. You're, you're going to really pay in the long run if you're just trying to nickel and time and chisel somebody to being a low-cost uh, provider of services. I would, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think it was just a, a funny example, but yeah, it's, oh. it, you're in the people business, honestly. I mean, that's like, you have to be all, all around. And, you know, if we were to kind of flip 
the switch for a second. And now it's circling back to one of the things that you said at the beginning, which is that you guys pay fair market value. So I want to kind of dive into that because I think it's very interesting. And I, and I also actually did not know that you're not allowed to pay a premium. And I think that there's an interesting explanation you can give to the listeners on this. But if I'm an owner and I think, you know, like, for example, selling to you would be so much different than creating my own ESOP. Right. So there's, there would be creating my own ESAP. I could sell to a private equity firm. I could sell to my internal man. I mean, there's like this huge span of options that are available. But what, what, it, what I find interesting is that, you know, because the things that matter to owners and to entrepreneurs, like, okay, I can get max dollar, but I'm going to have to gut my company, leverage the company because I'm going to have to sell to private equity and we're going to have to flip it. Right. There's a lot of ramifications to that rep, that avenue. And I might get what 20% more or something like that versus, okay, I'm going to sell to my internal team and then it's going to be a little bit less money. It's going to take a lot longer and we're not. So maybe kind of dive into like that, why you pay for market value, why you're not allowed to pay, pay a premium and how selling to you and that whole story about, um, you know, and you and I talked, I think it was Cammy, right? Who, mm-hmm. what the ramifications are for the community and stuff. So maybe start with the whole. Sure purchasing and how that all how that all works because it's super interesting yeah so uh, the fair market value and the prohibited transaction for premium i think that comes from there, there are advantages uh that come to the esop structure because of tax and the irs uh wants to be sure that people aren't abusing that and so you know the the extreme example would be that if i have my own company and I'm going to sell it uh, to the employees through an ESOP structure. If if I give it a valuation which is unrealistic, then I'm benefiting greatly, and I'm saddling the employees with a huge amount of debt that they may not be able to get out of. And so, the prohibited transaction comes in that the Department of Labor, the IRS, wants to make really sure that you are purchasing something for its fair market value. You're not overpaying for it. Because if you do, then probably it's not going to be sustainable. It's not going to be successful. And really what you've done is you've taken advantage of tax law to get too much money to the seller. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's where the fair market value uh, issue comes in. But does that sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Does that also apply to because like that that makes a ton of sense when you're an owner who's just kind of throwing the debt on the employees and kind of you're walking away in the sunset. But how about like when you're an ESOP and you're acquiring other companies because that does even in the, and obviously there's a lot of gray area I'm assuming, but yeah. especially when you're in the gray we're in the fair market value, but you can technically probably overpay a little bit because you're not paying taxes on that debt that you're potentially acquiring, right? So, I mean, like you could technically outbid someone if it was a competitive nature, couldn't, could you not? Well, and, and there are some ways, there, there's something called 1042 exchange where you get a tax advantage as the seller. And so you could actually outbid somebody by underpaying uh, because the seller would actually net more from that. And that, that gets a little bit into the weeds as, as well. Mm-hmm. A, again, it, it's a matter of so a strategic buyer, think of somebody that makes widgets. Well, if they have another company that makes widgets and so they're just buying it to buy the uh, distribution or the client list or some talent or some machinery or something, or maybe they're putting together a couple of widget uh, companies into a platform deal. And so they feel that they can pay 
um, a, a premium on that because by putting them all together, they're going to get uh, more value out of that. That's where it becomes a little bit grayer. So, and, and even in that case, there'd probably be some ESOP valuation firms and attorneys out there that say, well, in that case, it's not a premium because you're actually getting the value out of the deal. But yeah, right, right. There, there just are some situations where somebody's going to come in and they're going to say, I, I see more value out of this, so I'm going to pay more for it. The prime example would be when we sold our television station, the ESOP valuation that goes that comes through very rigorous and, and uh, valuation uh, methodologies, the buyer paid us two times what our valuation was. Now, mm-hmm. I think that it would be very difficult for an, us as an ESOP had we gone out and offered uh, two times the value of a television for, for a television station or any company probably our trustee and their valuation firm would would have a very hard time justifying that value. But on the other hand, if it's not a strategic buyer, again, we're not buying a discount. So it's not that some an owner says, well, I could get 20% more elsewhere. If they could get 20% more, most sellers would look to get that 20% more. If it, we're talking about 2% more, then do you really want to get that 2% more when again, you have no uh, assurances that that the company is going to continue on with the same employees in the same community, then there might be some differential. But we're not talking about a 20% difference. And that that gets to your question about the community. So for example, uh, when Foliance brought Lifeline Emergency Vehicles into Foliance, the community in which the company resides and has been there for, it had been there for 32 years. It's, it's a fairly small uh, rural community, 2,000, 2,200 population at most, 180 employees in the company. If somebody else bought that business and moved it out of the community, the community would seriously suffer. You know, property values, tax bases, people needing to commute uh, very long times to get to other jobs to continue to support their families. And so it was a great uh, alignment for the owner, for the employees, for the community that Foliance came in and makes this long term investment to continue operating the business in that community. Well, and it's so. Here's the, well, the thing that I find the most intriguing about it, Daniel, is that if you're the owner, and this is where like I would, I know you said the difference between two and 20%, but you know, let's say, I don't even know what the company was worth, but let's say it's 20 million bucks and you could potentially get another $4 million by selling it to a private equity firm that's literally going to gut it, move it, all this. Like, I don't know, man, there's a lot of people that said, okay, I like, there's only so much incremental value that I'm going to get out of that 4 million bucks and I'm, I'm going to have like literally two or 3000 people that hate me, not going to be proud about what I did. And your everything you just work for is going to be destroyed, but you can get literally fair market value and everything stays the same, which I don't know where else could you get fair market value and have someone keep everything as is. I don't even know if that's possible because even if you sold it to another strategic competitor, every like there's got to be a way that someone harnesses the value out of the company. And most of the time it's by changing things. <laughs> so yeah. unless it's internal management, which then therefore it's usually long and it's not fair market value. So I just, there's this like a whole unique structure of what you've got going on that they can check a lot of the boxes that you can't really do any, anywhere else. 
And and the one thing that really supports that, Ryan, is that when Lifeline emergency vehicles uh, joined Folians, not a single job was lost. We we don't buy companies and carve out a third uh, and, and consolidate the back office and we see the savings that way. As a matter of fact, there have been net gains of already the company has shown growth and they're hiring more people. So it keeps the employees employed. It keeps the company in the community and it already shows growth. And that's really what Folliance is looking to do. We're not buying broken companies and turning them around. We don't feel that we're the right environment for taking that risk. We're not buying companies that don't have management uh, continuity because that is really just another form of turnaround. We're looking for successful companies that for any number of reasons need a transition of ownership. The owner is aging out. The, the owners want to take some chips off the table, that they're considering doing their own ESOP. And this is a better way of getting that same end goal of transforming to employee ownership. But we're looking for successful companies that are going to be even more successful going through their transition by being in our platform and being supported by our shared services. And uh, the, the employee owners not only get ownership in that company, but it's a little bit like a diversified mutual fund that they also have ownership in all the other companies that are within Folians because it's all consolidated into one stock. And well, and what I find is so crazy too is, and I don't know, and I know there's too many probably it depends ways to answer this, but um, let's take the forklift driver because always that that, that yeah. seems to be a, a great great person where you know they're probably making fifteen to twenty bucks an hour, and you know without getting into a ton of the weeds, like it's almost physically impossible for them to save for retirement. <laughs> I mean, yeah. with the with the way that you know the living expenses and et cetera, so they're probably saving five grand a year in a Roth or something like that versus like do you have any kind of ranges of like how different that person's outcome is working in a situation of an ESOP or like yourself versus literally working for, you know, FedEx or something like that? Absolutely. So, and this was not a setup. You didn't know this, but something that we're really (laughs) proud of is that, let me start with a little bit of a story. So I was talking with somebody who was bringing a construction company ESOP and asked about their 401k. And they said, oh, we don't have a 401k. I said, why not? Well, they're construction workers. They wouldn't contribute. I said, oh, no, 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 no. So we are very proud that through our education of our employee base, we have a 93% contribution rate across manufacturing workers, office workers, 93% that contribute to our 401k. And even better... We recently were told through our uh, third-party administrator that administers our 401k that we have 60% of our employees that are on track to retire with 70% income replacement going into retirement. (laughs) Holy buckets. And I have no problem just telling the world that. That is what you can do with education, engaging employees, making sure that you have the right programs out there. Now, any company could do that, but there is a certain advantage that I think the ESOP has also because part of contributing to that income replacement is what they're earning through their labor in equity uh, value in the company. 
and that gives a an added advantage. And so I know that Foliant's employee owners are going to, on uh, average and actually in much greater numbers, have a much better future in retirement than a lot of people working in other companies because of those numbers. Those are crazy numbers. Like, and I don't even know like what the general, like, and I, I think a lot of people see it all over on all the different uh, publications, but so you have a 93 employee contribution rate. Most people are probably sitting at what, 10 to 20. <laughs> and then you had 60% of employee, employees on the way to, uh, to 70% income replacement. Is yeah. that probably six across the whole US? I mean, like you're probably, you could throw, you could probably eliminate your zeros and that would be the average. And I, I don't know the numbers. They're, I know, you don't, either do I, but I know they're really horrible. <laughs> and there are a lot of companies that don't even have 401ks. Much less, not only do we have the 401k, we have a 401k with a match. And it's just, it, it's a better deal. And this is the capitalism. These people are working hard and they do work hard and they're providing for their future, for their retirement. They're going to have a better life when they finish having long careers of, of working. They get to enjoy that retirement. So with that, uh, so with that 401k, then it, in the, we don't have to go into this for the, the lack of time that we've got right now, but so they're, they're getting additional benefits from the stock that they own of Foliance, right? So, I mean, it's the 401k that they're doing plus the growth and the shares that they have owned based on their labor and their salaries, correct? So it's kind of a combo approach. Yeah. So uh, they, they get their total compensation and there is no discounting total compensation. The compensation is competitive to non-ESOP companies. In addition to all their uh, total compensation includes their health and benefits and wellness credits and all that. The 401k, because uh, they're participating, they get a match to the 401k and they then earn, not paying for it, just earn by working here, their additional stock in the company that comes through the ESOP program. And so by the time they get to retirement, they've had their total compensation, they get their 401k, they get their accrued match to the 401k, and they get their accrued equity value in ESOP stock as well. Yeah, home run. (laughs) Honestly, I would say any person that's out there looking for a job, Look for right. ESOP companies. <laughs> right. You're going to get a better deal. You're going to be an employee owner. And it's it's not just for Foliance. Any ESOP, go mm-hmm. out there and look for that. Just It's a better deal. So, Daniel, this has been an absolute blast. If there's, because we talked about a lot of stuff, is there anything that you want to reiterate that we chatted about or something that we might have skipped over? What would you want to leave the listeners with? Just that employee ownership is the way that you can invest your labor to earn ownership value in a company. Why wouldn't you look at that? And then how about from an owner's perspective that's looking at all their different options to what to do with their business? That if you really care about what you've grown and the people that have helped you grow that, then look at if you need to transition ownership There are different ways to go about it, but look at transitioning that into employee ownership. And I'm a big proponent of employee ownership. I participate in the national conferences. I just joined the board of trustees of the ESOP Association Foundation. 
I'm always happy to share a little bit of my time to help others understand and uh, evaluate how they can journey into employee ownership. So if they wanted to to reach out to you, what would be the best contact way? My email is daniel at foliance.com. Foliance is F as in Frank, O-L-I-E-N-C-E. And also take a look at our website, which is foliance.com. And if you're planning on selling Daniel a billboard or paid ads, he is not going to pay to play. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, but I'm happy to help others find out what is their best way. And it doesn't have to have anything to do with benefiting Folians. I'm just a big believer in employee ownership. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a lot of fun. Thank you, Ryan. I have too. And thanks for spreading the word. I think you're doing a great thing uh, with, with these podcasts. I appreciate it very much. I hope you enjoyed that episode and I hope you enjoyed seeing the differences of what an ESOP could be like compared to a private equity, compared to family offices, compared to literally like how to make money, how to literally engineer your exit to accomplish the goals of your employees, how to make your company last, how to make the money that you deserve and how to keep a lot of stuff the way you want it because there's a vision that's progressing and evolving as you transition out of it. I just think that one of the biggest takeaways that you have to have as a listener, and if you're an owner that you're sitting there going, what are my options? I just, you have to pay attention and go dive in to what it is like to potentially sell to an ESOP. It's too ridiculously advantageous from the numbers, the tax savings and saving your culture. And it just checks so many boxes that I really suggest. And I really encourage you to go do some research and to really understand if this is a viable option for you. We have a ton of information on this particular situation on our website in GEXP under the ultimate guides. There's an ultimate guide to your best internal exit options and there's a big section on ESOPs and there's a bunch of other podcasts about it. And one of our preferred partners does a bunch of free analysis on this and a a bunch of intro one-on-one conversations. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me, reach out to the website and just do some homework because it's totally worth your time. If you enjoyed the episode, go on to iTunes, give me a rating. Otherwise, I will see you next week.